0: Letter nine of the Sylph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sylph by Georgiana Cavendish, Duchess of Devonshire. Letter nine, part one. To Lady Stanley, my dearest child, the task you set your father is a heavy one but I cheerfully comply with any request of my Julia's. However, before I enter upon it, let me say a little to you. Are you happy, my child? Do you find the world such as you thought it while it was unknown to you? Do the pleasures you enjoy present to you with an equivalent for your renunciation of a fond father and tender sister? Is their affection amply repaid by the love of your husband?' All these, and a thousand other equally important questions, I long to put to my beloved. I wish to know the true state of your heart. I then should be able to judge whether or not I ought to mourn or rejoice in this separation from you. Believe me, Julia, I am not so selfish to wish you here, merely to augment my narrow circle of felicity. If you can convince me you are happier where you are. But can all the bustle the confusion you describe be productive of happiness to a young girl born and educated in the lap of peaceful retirement the novelty may strike your mind and for a while you may think yourself happy because you are amused and have not time to define what your reflections are but in the sober hour when the stillness reigns and the soul unbends itself from the fatigues of the day what judgment then does cool reason form Are you satisfied? Are your slumbers peaceful and calm? Do you ever sigh after the shades of Woodley and your rural friends? Answer these questions fairly and candidly, my Julia. Prove to me you are happy, and your heart as good and innocent as ever, and I shall descend to the silent tomb with peaceful smiles. Perhaps the resolution I formed of retiring from a world in which I had met with disgust was too hastily concluded on but be that as it may, it was sacred, and as such I have, and will, keep it. I lost my confidence in mankind, and I could find no one whose virtues could redeem it. Many years have elapsed since, and the manners and customs change so frequently that I should be a total stranger among the inhabitants of this present age. You have heard me say I was married before I had the happiness of being united to your amiable mother i shall begin my narrative from the commencement of that union only premising that i was the son of the younger branch of a noble family whose name i bear i inherited the blood but very little more of my ancestors however a taste for pleasure and an indulgence of some of the then fashionable follies which in all ages and all times are too prevalent conspired to make my little fortune still more contracted thus situated i became acquainted with a young lady of a large fortune my figure and address won her heart her person was agreeable and although i might not be what the word calls in love i certainly was attached to her knowing the inferiority of my fortune i could not presume to offer her my hand even after i was convinced she wished i should but some circumstances arising which brought us more intimately acquainted at length conquered my scruples and without consulting any other guide than our passions we married my finances are now extremely straitened although for my wife was heiress of upwards of thirty thousand pounds yet till she came of age i could reap no advantage of it and to that period she wanted near four years we were both fond of pleasure and foolishly lived as if we were in actual possession of double that income I found myself deeply involved, but the time drew near that was to set all to rights, and I had prevailed on my wife to consent to a retrenchment. We had formed a plan of retiring for some time in the country, to look after her estate, and by the way of taking a polite leave of our friends, or rather acquaintance for, when they were put to the test, I found them undeserving of that appellation. By the way, I say, of quitting the town with Eclat, My wife proposed giving an elegant entertainment on her birthday, which was on the twenty fourth of December. Christmas Day fell that year upon a Monday. Unwilling to protract this day of joy till Tuesday, my wife desired to anticipate her natal festival, and accordingly Saturday was appointed. She had set my heart on dancing in the evening, and was extremely mortified on finding an extreme pain in her ankle, which she attributed to a strain. IT WAS SO VIOLENT DURING DINNER TIME THAT SHE WAS CONSTRAINED TO LEAVE THE TABLE. A LADY, WHO RETIRED WITH HER, TOLD HER THE SUREST REMEDY FOR A STRAIN WAS TO PLUNGE THE LEG IN COLD WATER, AND WOULD PROCURE INSTANT RELIEF. IMPATIENT OF THE DISAPPOINTMENT AND ANGUISH, SHE TOO FATALLY CONSENTED. I KNEW NOTHING OF WHAT WAS DOING IN MY WIFE'S DRESSING-ROOM, TILL MY ATTENTION WAS ROUSED BY REPEATED CRIES terribly alarmed i flew thither and found her in agonies of death good god what was my distraction at that moment i then recollected that she often told me of all her family being subject to the gout at a very early age every medical assistance was procured with all speed the physician however gave but small hopes unless the disorder could be removed from her head and stomach which it had attacked with the greatest violence how was all our mirth in one sad moment overthrown the day which had risen with smiles now promised to set in tears in the few lucid intervals which my unhappy wife could be said to have she instantly prayed to live till she could secure her fortune to my life which could be done no other way than making her will since having no children the estate should she die before she came of age or even then without a bequest would devolve upon a cousin with whose family we had preserved no intimacy owing to the illiberal reflections part of them had cast on my wife for marrying a man without an answerable fortune my being allied to a noble family was no recommendation to those who had acquired their wealth by trade and were possessed of the most sordid principles i would not listen to the persuasion of my friends who urged me to get writings executed to which my wife might set her hand such measures appeared to me both selfish and cruel or rather my mind was too much absorbed in my present affliction to pay any attention to my future security in her greatest agonies and most severe proxisms she knew and acknowledged her obligations to me for the unremitted kindness I had shown her during our union. "'Oh, my God!' she would exclaim. "'Oh, my God! let me but live to reward him. "'I ask not length of years, though in the bloom of life. "'I submit with cheerful resignation to thy will. "'My God! I ask not length of days. "'I only petition for a few short hours of sense and recollection, "'that I may, by the disposition of my affairs, REMOVE ALL OTHER DISTRESS FROM THE BOSOM OF MY BELOVED HUSBAND, SAVE WHAT HE WILL FEEL ON THIS SEPARATION. DEAR SOUL, SHE PRAYED IN VAIN. NAY, I DOUBT HER APPREHENSION AND TERRORS, LEST SHE SHOULD DIE, INCREASED THE AGONIES OF HER BODY AND MIND. UNKNOWN TO ME, A GENTLEMAN, BY THE REQUEST OF MY DYING WIFE, DREW UP A DEED. THE PAPER LAY ON THE BED. SHE MEANT TO SIGN IT AS SOON AS THE CLOCK STRUCK TWELVE till within a few minutes of that time she continued tolerably calm, and her head perfectly clear. She flattered herself, and endeavored to convince us she would recover. But, alas, this was only a little gleam of hope, to sink us deeper in despair. Her pain returned with redoubled violence from this short recess, and her senses never again resumed their seat she suffered the most excruciating agonies till two in the morning, then winged her flight to heaven, leaving me the most forlorn and disconsolate of men. I continued in a state of stupefaction for several days, till my friends roused me by asking what course I meant to pursue. I had the whole world before me, and saw myself, as it were, totally detached from any part of it. My own relations I had disobliged by marrying the daughter of a tradesman. They were, no doubt, glad of an excuse to rid themselves of an indignant person who might reflect dishonor on their nobility. Of them I had no hopes. I had as little probability of success in my application to the friends of my late wife, yet I thought, in justice, they should not refuse to make some allowances for the expenses our manner of living had brought on me, as they well knew they were occasioned by my compliance with her taste, at least so far as to discharge some of my debts. I waited on Mr. Maynard, the father of the lady who now possessed the estate, to lay before him the situation of my affairs. He would hardly hear me out with patience. He upbraided me with stealing an heiress, and with meanly taking every method of obliging a dying woman to injure her relations in short his behaviour was rude unmanly and indecent i scorned to hold converse with so sordid a wretch and was leaving his house with the utmost displeasure when his daughter slipped out of the room she begged me with many tears not to impute her father's incivility to her wished the time was come when she should be her own mistress but hoped she should be able to bring her father to some terms of accommodation and assured me she would use all her influence with him to induce him to do me justice her influence over the mind of such a man as her father had like to have little weight as it proved she used all her eloquence in my favour which only served to instigate him against me he sent a very rude and abrupt message to me to deliver up several articles of household furniture and other things which had belonged to my wife which, however, I had refused to do, unless I was honoured with the order of Miss Maynard. Her father could not prevail on her to make the requisition, and enraged at my insolence and her obstinacy, as he politely styled our behaviour. He swore he would be revenged. In order to make his words good, he went severally to each of the tradespeople to whom I was indebted, and collecting the sums prevailed on them to make over the debts to him, thereby becoming the sole creditor. And how merciful I should find him! I leave you to judge from the motive by which he acted. In a few days there was an execution in my house, and I was conveyed to the king's bench. At first I took the resolution of continuing there contentedly, till either my cruel creditor should relent, or that an act of grace should take place a prison however is dreadful to a free mind and i solicited those who had in the days of my prosperity professed a friendship for me some few afforded me a temporary relief but dealt with a scanty hand others disclaimed me none would bail me or undertake my cause many who had contributed to my extravagance now condemned me for launching into expenses beyond my income and those who refused their assistance thought they had a right to censure my conduct thus did i find myself deserted and neglected by the whole world and was early taught how little independence we ought to place on the goods of it when i had been an inmate of the house of bondage some few weeks i received a note from miss maynard she deplored in the most pathetic terms the steps her father had taken which she had never discovered till that morning, and entreated my acceptance of a trifle, to render my confinement less intolerable. And if I should devise any methods, wherein she could be serviceable, she should think herself most happy. There was such a delicacy and nobleness of soul that ran through the whole of this little billet, as at the same time that it showed me the writer in the most amiable light, gave birth to the liveliest gratitude in my bosom, I had, till this moment, considered her only as the daughter of Mr. Maynard, as one whose mind was informed by the same principles as his own. I now beheld her in another view. I looked on her only in her relation to my late wife, whose virtues she inherited with her fortune. I felt a veneration for the generosity of a young girl, who, from the narrow sentiments of her father, could not be mistress of any large sum." and yet she had, in the politest manner, making it a favor done to herself, obliged me to accept a twenty-pound note. I had a thousand conflicts with myself, whether I should keep or return it. Nothing but my fear of giving her pain could have decided it. I recollected the tears she shed the last time I saw her, on reading over her note again. I discovered the paper blistered in several places, To all this, let me add, her image seemed to stand confessed before me. Her person, which I had hardly ever thought about, now was present to my imagination. It lost nothing by never having been the subject of my attention before. I sat ruminating on the picture I had been drawing in my mind, till, becoming perfectly enthusiastic in my ideas, I started up, and clasping my hands together. Why? i exclaimed aloud, why have i not twenty thousand pounds to bestow on this adorable creature the sound of my voice brought me to myself and i instantly recollected i ought to make some acknowledgment to my fair benefactress i found the task a difficult one after writing and rejecting several i at last was resolved to send the first i had attempted knowing that though less studied it certainly was the genuine effusions of my heart. After saying all my gratitude dictated, I told her that next to her society I should price her correspondence above everything in this world, but that I begged she would not let compassion for an unfortunate man lead her into any inconveniences, but be guided entirely by her own discretion. I would, in the meantime, entreat her to send me a few books. The subject I left to her— they being her taste, would be the strongest recommendation. Perhaps I said more than I ought to have done, although at that time I thought I fell infinitely short of what I might have said. And yet, I take God to witness, I did not mean to engage her affection, and no thing was less from my intention than basely to practice on her passions. In one of her letters she asked me if my debts were discharged, what would be my dependence or scheme of life i freely answered my dependence would be either to get a small place or else serve my king in the war now nearly breaking out which rather suited the activity of my disposition she has since told me she shed floods of tears over that expression the activity of my disposition she drew in her imagination the most affecting picture of a man in the bloom and vigour of life excluded from the common benefits of his fellow-creatures by the merciless rapacity of an inhuman creditor the effect of this melancholy representation had on her mind while pity endeared the object of it to her made her take the resolution of again addressing her father in my behalf he accused her of ingratitude in thus repaying his care for her welfare hurt by the many harsh things he said she told him the possession of ten times the estate could convey no pleasure to her bosom while it was tortured with the idea that he who had the best right to it was secluded from every comfort of life and that whenever it should be in her power she would not fail to make every reparation she could for the violence offered to an innocent injured man this brought down her father's heaviest displeasure he reviled her in the grossest terms asserted she had been fascinated by me as her ridiculous cousin had been before but that he would take care his family should not run the risk of being again beggared by such a spendthrift and that he should use such precautions as to frustrate any scheme i might form of seducing her from her duty she sought to exculpate me from the charges her father had brought against me but he paid no regard to her asseverations and remained deaf and inexorable to all her entreaties. When I learnt this I wrote to Miss Maynard, entreating her for her own sake, to resign an unhappy man to his evil destiny. I begged her to believe I had sufficient resolution to support confinement, or any other ill, but that it was an aggravation to my sufferings, which to sustain was very difficult." to find her zeal for me, had drawn on her the ill-usage of her father. I further requested she would never again mention me to him, and, if possible, never think of me if those thoughts were productive of the least disquiet to her. I likewise mentioned my hearing an act of grace would soon release me from my bonds, and then I was determined to offer myself a volunteer in the service, where, perhaps, I might find a cannonball my best friend." a life so different to what i had been used to brought on a disorder which the agitation of my spirits increased so much as to reduce me almost to the gates of death an old female servant of miss maynard's paid me a visit bringing me some little nutritive delicacies which her kind mistress thought would be serviceable to me shocked at the deplorable spectacle i made for i began to neglect my appearance which a man is apt to do when not at peace with himself shocked i say she represented me in such a light to her lady as filled her gentle soul with the utmost terror for my safety guided alone by the partiality she honoured me with she formed the resolution of coming to see me she however gave me half an hour's notice of her intention i employed the intermediate time in putting myself into a condition of receiving her with more decency the little exertion i made had nearly exhausted my remaining strength and i was more dead than alive when the trembling pale and tottering guest made her approach in the house of woe we could neither of us speak for some time the benevolence of her heart had supported her during her journey thither but now the native modesty of her sex seemed to point out the impropriety of visiting a man unsolicited in prison weak as i was I saw the necessity of encouraging the drooping spirits of my fair visitor. I paid her my grateful acknowledgments for her inestimable goodness. She begged me to be silent on that head, as it brought reflection she could ill support. In obedience to her, I gave the conversation another turn, but still I could not help reverting to the old subject. She then stopped me by asking, what was there so extraordinary in her conduct? and whether, in her situation, would not I have done as much for her? Oh, yes, I cried with eagerness, that I should, and ten times more. I instantly felt the impropriety of my speech. Then I have been strangely deficient, said she, looking at me with a gentle smile. I ask a thousand pardons, said I, for the abruptness of my expression, I meant to evince my value for you, and my sense of what I thought you deserved. You must excuse my method. I have been long unused to the association of human beings, at least such as resemble you. You have already conferred more favors than I could merit at your hands. Miss Maynard seemed disconcerted. She looked grave. It is a sign you think so, said she, in a tone of voice that showed she was piqued as you have taken such pains to explain away an involuntary compliment but i have already exceeded the bounds i prescribed to myself in this visit it is time to leave you i felt abashed and found myself incapable of saying anything to clear myself from the imputation of insensibility or ingratitude without betraying the tenderness which i really possessed for her yet which i thought circumstance as i was would be ungenerous to the last degree to discover, as it would be tacitly laying claim to hers. The common rules of politeness, however, called on me to say something. I respectfully took her hand, which trembled as much as mine. "'Dear Miss Maynard,' said I, "'how shall I thank you for the pleasure your company has conveyed to my bosom?' Even then, thinking I had said too much, "'especially as I, by an involuntary impulse, "'found my fingers compress hers. "'I added, "'I plainly see the impropriety of asking you to renew your goodness. "'I must not be selfish, "'or urge you to take any step for which you may hereafter condemn yourself.' "'I find, sir,' she replied, "'your prudence is greater than mine. "'I need never apprehend danger from such a monitor.' don't mistake me said i with a sigh i could not repress i doubt i have returned she but i will endeavour to develop your character perhaps if i do not find myself quite perfect i may run the risk of taking another lesson unless you should tell me it is imprudent so saying she left me there was rather an affectation of gaiety in her last speech which would have offended me had I not seen it was only put on to conceal her real feelings from a man, who seemed oddly insensible to her invaluable perfections both of mind and body. Yet how was I to act? I loved her with the utmost purity, and yet fervor. My heart chied me for throwing cold water on the tenderness of this amiable girl. But my reason told me I should be a villain to strive to gain her affections in such a situation as I was." had I been lord of the universe, I would have shared it with my Maria. You will ask how I could so easily forget the lowness of my fortune and my connection with her cousin. I answer, the case was widely different. I then made a figure in life equal to my birth, though my circumstances were contracted. Now I was poor and in prison. Then I listened only to my passions. Now REASON AND PRUDENCE HAD SOME SWAY WITH ME. MY LOVE FOR MY LATE WIFE WAS THE LOVE OF A BOY. MY ATTACHMENT TO MARIA THE SENTIMENTS OF A MAN, A MAN VISITED BY, AND prey TO, MISFORTUNE. ON REFLECTION, I FOUND I LOVED HER TO THE GREATEST HEIGHT. AFTER PASSING A SLEEPLESS NIGHT OF ANGUISH, I CAME TO THE RESOLUTION OF EXCULPATING MYSELF FROM THE CHARGE OF INSENSIBILITY though at the expense of losing sight of her I loved forever. I wrote her a letter, wherein I freely confessed the danger I apprehended from the renewal of her visit. I opened my whole soul before her, but at the same time told her I laid no claim to any more from her than compassion, showed her the rack of constraint I put on myself, to conceal the emotions of my heart, lest the generosity of hers might involve her in a too-strong partiality for so abject a wretch. I hoped she would do me the justice to believe that, as no man ever loved more, so no one on earth could have her interest more at heart than myself, since to those sentiments I sacrificed everything dear to me. Good God! What tears did this letter cost me? I sometimes condemned myself, and thought it false generosity why should i said i to myself why should i thus cast happiness away from two who seem formed to constitute all the world to each other how rigorous are thy mandates o virtue how severe thy decree and o how much do i feel in obeying thee no sooner was the letter gone than i repented the step i had pursued i called myself ungrateful to the bounty of heaven who thus as it were had inspired the most lovely of women with an inclination to relieve my distress, and had likewise put the means in her hands. These cogitations contributed neither to establish my health or compose my spirits. I had no return to my letter. Indeed, I had not urged one. Several days passed in a state of mind which can only be known to those who have experienced the same. At last a packet was brought me— it contained an ensign's commission in a regiment going to germany and a paper sealed up on which was written it is the request of m m that mr granville does not open this till he has crossed the seas there was another paper folded in the form of a letter but not sealed that i hastily opened and found it contained only a few words and a bank bill of a hundred pounds the contents were as follow true love knows not the nice distinctions you have made at least if i may be allowed to judge from my own feelings i think it does not i may however be mistaken but the error is too pleasing to be relinquished and i would much rather indulge it than listen at present to the cold prudential arguments which a too refined and ill-placed generosity points out when you arrive at the place of your destination you may gain a farther knowledge of a heart Capable at the same time of the tenderest partiality and a firm resolution of conquering it. Every word of this billet was a dagger to my soul. I then ceased not to accuse myself of ingratitude to the loveliest of women, as guilty of false pride instead of generosity. If she placed her happiness in my society, why should I deprive her of it? As she said, my sentiments were too refined. I asked myself if it would not have been my supreme delight to have raised her from the dregs of the people to share the most exalted situation with me why should i then think less highly of her attachment of which i had received such proofs than i was convinced mine was capable of for the future i was determined to sacrifice these nice punctilios which were ever opposing my felicity and that of an amiable woman who clearly and repeatedly told me by her looks actions and a thousand little nameless attentions i could not mistake that her whole happiness depended on me i thought nothing could convince her more thoroughly of my wish of being obliged to her than the acceptance of her bounty i made no longer any hesitation about it that very day i was released from my long confinement by the grace act to the utter mortification of my old prosecutor i drove immediately to some lodgings i had provided in the strand from whence i instantly dispatched a billet doux to maria in which i said these words the first moment of liberty i devote to the lovely maria who has my heart a slave i am convert to your assertion that love makes not distinctions otherwise could i support the reflection and all i am worth in the world i owe to you but to you the world owes all the charms it has in my eyes we will not however talk of debtor and creditor but permit me to make up in adoration what i want in wealth fortune attends the brave i will therefore flatter myself with returning laden with the spoils of the enemy and in such a situation that you may openly indulge the partiality which makes the happiness of my life without being put to the blush by sordid relations i shall obey your mandates the more cheerfully as i think i am perfectly acquainted with every perfection of your heart judge then how i must value it before i quit england i shall petition for the honour of kissing your hand but how shall i bid you adieu the time now drew nigh when i was to take leave of my native land and what was dear to me my maria i was too affected to utter a word her soul had more heroic greatness go said she pursue the paths of glory have confidence in providence and never distrust me i have already experienced some hazards on your account but perhaps my father may be easier in his mind when he is assured you have left england I pressed her to explain herself. She did so by informing me. Her father suspected her attachment, and to prevent any ill-consequence arising, had proposed a gentleman to her for a husband, whom she had rejected with firmness. "'No artifice, or ill-usage,' continued she, "'shall make any change in my resolution. But I shall say no more. The packet will more thoroughly convince you of what I am capable.' "'Good God!' said I, in an agony. "'Why should your tenderness be incompatible with your duty?' "'I do not think it,' she answered. "'It is my duty to do justice, and I do no more, "'by seeking to restore you to your own.' We settled the mode of our future correspondence, and I tore myself from the only one I loved on earth. When I joined the regiment I availed myself of the privilege given me to inspect the papers— oh how was my love esteem and admiration increased the contents were written at a time when she thought me insensible or at least too scrupulous she made a solemn vow never to marry but as soon as she came of age to divide the estate with me making over the remainder to any children i might have but the whole was couched in terms of such delicate tenderness as drew floods of tears from my eyes and riveted my soul more firmly to her i instantly wrote to her and concealed not a thought or sentiment of my heart that alone dictated every line in the letter she returned she sent me her picture in a locket and on the reverse a device with her hair this was an inestimable present to me it was my sole employ while off duty to gaze on the lovely resemblance of the fairest of women for some months our correspondence was uninterrupted however six weeks had now passed since i expected a letter love is industrious in tormenting itself i formed ten thousand dreadful images in my own mind and sunk into despair from each i wrote letter after letter but had still no return. I had no other correspondent in England. Distraction seized me. "'She is dead!' I cried to myself. "'She is dead. I have nothing to do but to follow her.' At last I wrote to a gentleman who lived in the neighborhood of Mr. Maynard, conjuring him in the most affecting terms, to inform me of what I yet dreaded to be told. I waited with a dying impatience till the mails arrived. A letter was brought to me from this gentleman. He said, Mr. Maynard's family had left L. some time. They proposed going abroad, but he believed they had retired to some part of Essex. There had a report prevailed of Miss Maynard's being married, but, if true, it was since they had left L. The news was not very likely to clear or calm my doubts. What could I think? My reflections only served to awaken my grief i continued two years making every inquiry but never received the least satisfactory account a prey to the most heartfelt affliction life became insupportable to me was she married i revolved in my mind all the hardships she must have endured before she would be prevailed on to falsify her own vows to me which were registered in heaven had death ended her distress i was convinced it had been hastened by the severity of an unnatural father whichsoever way i turned my thoughts the most excruciating reflections presented themselves and in each i saw her sufferings alone letter nine part one